This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you have your Bible open to Luke 9, keep it there. That'll be our passage that we'll look at together this morning. Let's briefly ask the Lord to bless our time. Join me in prayer. Lord, we now ask that you would open eyes and ears and hearts. We pray that you would do more than we can do, more than I can do, that we might see you and love you. Lord, that there would be maybe some here today that for the first time understand who you are, what you've done, and that they would be drawn to you in repentance and faith. And for many of us, Lord, that we again would see and be reminded of the glory of the gospel and be drawn to greater holiness, greater affection, love, risk-taking obedience. We pray for your glory. We pray you would build us up to be a faithful witness to this glorious gospel, to our King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's not often that you spend a significant amount of time with someone not knowing who they are. But that is the case for the disciples uh, with Jesus. They have been spending significant amount of time with this person and they don't understand exactly who he is. It is a bit of a mystery. And that's a theme that if you, if you read the Gospels and you think about the way Jesus reveals himself, that, that theme of mystery is consistent in all the Gospels. And here in Luke, it's no different. It, it kind of unfolds gradually in a very intriguing way. This question of who is Jesus, who is this, appears in many different ways and shapes and forms. Uh, we've seen it in chapter 4, 5, 7, and 8. And now here in chapter 9, uh, Herod has asked the question. But Jesus is going to actually force the question now. Jesus is going to press the question on his own disciples. We've seen the answer to this question already in Luke's gospel. Those of us who have been studying, walking through these these chapters, we've seen it on the lips of angels in Luke chapter 2, when they announce his coming, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's a significant term today, Christ the Lord. Luke himself, speaking of Simeon, mentions in Luke 2, Uh, that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then he met Jesus. The demons have recognized Jesus for who he is. Multiple times in Luke 4, uh, they they say, uh, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus himself has claimed the Messianic passages from Isaiah 61 for himself in his sermon in Luke 4. But it's not until this passage in chapter 9 that the 12, Peter leading, kind of representing the disciples, they begin to piece it together who this actually is. And Peter makes, by God's grace, a good confession about who Jesus is. He gives the correct answer about his identity. But there is still a very long way to go in understanding his mission. A long way to understand, to go in understanding his true purpose for coming, and how he would fulfill that purpose. Notice, as soon as the profession is made by Peter, Jesus begins to fill in the gaps and explain this is what the Messiah would do. 
And so Luke has taken nine chapters to introduce us to the person of, of Jesus, and now he's going to shift and focus on the work of Jesus. Okay, he's been showing us who he is, and now he's going to shift and help us to understand what he's come to do and what it means to follow him. That's going to be a particular focus of our passage next week. And so uh, the, the, the two ideas of identity and mission really frame this passage, kind of in this transition point in Luke 9. Jesus presses them, he presses each of us, not with who the people say that I am, but who do you? You, sitting in that chair this morning, who do you say that I am? The answer comes in two parts. The first, Peter's confession. So number one, if you're taking notes, identity, verses 18 to 20. In part two, in Jesus defining what that actually means in his mission, verses 21 to 22. Identity and mission. The answer really is the main point, isn't it? That Jesus is the suffering, rejected, cross-bearing, risen Messiah of God. That's who Jesus is. That's what we come away understanding. The suffering, rejected, cross-bearing, risen Messiah. The crucified and risen Savior. And we've heard others confess that identity even this morning through baptism. But what about you? In order to do that, you need to understand His identity and mission. Because the road to glory that Jesus walks as a Savior absolutely goes through a cross. And he is not alone on that road. He doesn't walk that path alone. So let's first consider Peter's confession as we think about identity. Number one, identity. This story picks up um, as things have seemingly settled down after the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, remember, that came on the heels of the disciples reporting back on their mission trip in the villages of Galilee, desire to get away and rest, which didn't actually happen like the way they thought it would. But now we find them finally alone with Jesus, away from the crowds there in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, I think alone from the crowds, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And again, I just want to think it's important to note that Jesus is praying. Luke notes more than any other gospel author the times when Jesus gets away to pray. He prayed at his baptism in the wilderness before he began to preach, before he called his first disciples, and again when it came time to choose the twelve. Each time represents kind of a new phase in Jesus' ministry. And so before he asked the disciples this all-important question about his identity and mission, Jesus prays. His prayer isn't recorded, but I think what we, hear, we see here is a picture of him praying likely especially for his disciples to understand who he is, for the Father to reveal his identity to them, and for their understanding of the nature of his mission to be clear. So as Jesus walks this road of suffering and rejection to save his people, he also prays for his people. And beloved, he's doing that even now, even today here for you, Christian, praying for you. Paul reminds the Christians at Rome in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who is interceding for us. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, consequently, he, has been, he is able to save, he says, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so Jesus' saving work 
His priestly work continues even now to save you to the uttermost by going to the Father for us. He lives to intercede. And the Father delights to answer the prayers of the Son. If you remember in Matthew's Gospel, when Peter makes this important connection and confession about Jesus as the Messiah, Matthew records Jesus saying this, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So I think the profession, confession Peter makes is an answer to Jesus' prayer. And, and that is true for any of us who make a true confession or right conclusion about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We, like Peter, are studying and thinking about the life of Jesus. We, like Peter, are considering his words very, very carefully. But God must also open our eyes and our hearts to believe in the way that he does Peter's in the twelve. So friend, if you're, if you're sharing the gospel with someone regularly now, um, I hope that you would just follow in Jesus' example and just be praying for them. Praying that God would do this for them. I know many of you have been praying for those four that were baptized today. They've told me, they've, you've told them. What a great encouragement that is. What a great encouragement to know that Jesus is praying. What an encouragement to know the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Paul says in Romans 8, He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so here Jesus is praying. And then He asks them this important question. What do the, what do the crowds say about Him? What's the public opinion poll? And the answer is very similar to what Herod recalled earlier in the chapter. You see it there in verse 19. And they answered, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old that is risen. Again, the general opinion about Jesus is positive and it has a supernatural tone to it. Many had heard likely about John the Baptist, but maybe not had actually seen him. And so they're hearing about the things that John did and said, and then they're hearing about the things Jesus did and said, and probably seeing a connection there, maybe even confusing the two. We could see there'd be some overlap. Of course, we know the difference between one who is a herald, and one who is the king. John the Baptist is the herald of the coming of the true king, but many didn't see that. Others mistakenly applied the prophecy about Elijah from Malachi 4 to Jesus that says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, Luke tells us that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1.17 But a lot of the miracles that Jesus did were very similar to things Elijah did. The bread miracle and raising a widow's son. So you can see the natural connection there. Others maybe thought there was another prophet like Jeremiah, perhaps Moses. Jesus has been doing some very Moses-like things, spreading a banqueting table in the wilderness, in the feeding of the 5,000. Lots of interesting ideas. And of course, we know the same is true today. But crowdsourcing and opening up the internet or whatever it would be is not the the most accurate way for you to find out who Jesus is. Surveying the culture. There you will find a, a subjective buffet line. Uh, which, which parts of Jesus would you like to take with you and which parts would you rather leave behind? Which hard edges would you rather soften? Which boundaries would you rather erase? But C.S. Lewis reminds us that we cannot do that. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but 
I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so if you want to take Jesus seriously, we have to think about the things that he actually said. And are we going to really grapple with those things and give our life to him? And so he pushes his disciples to come to notice a personal conclusion, a personal decision, declaration about who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? Again, friend, Jesus is not interested in what your your grandparents thought about Jesus Christ, about what your parents think. On the last day, I won't be with you to answer for you what you should or ought to think or what a good statement of faith says about Jesus Christ. All that will matter on that day is what you say, what you believe, what you personally have staked your life on. Was it Jesus? There's not multiple answers. We're not saying, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? To me, he is like this. To me, he is like that. Now, there's, there's one answer, one answer alone. And Peter, Peter gives it really clearly there in verse 20. Again, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. If you're visiting this morning or you're new to, to church, you may hear that word Christ and often associate it with Jesus like a last name. Um, Mr. Christ, Jesus Christ, but it's not that. It's actually a a title, a very significant biblical title. Um, In Greek, it's the word Christos, where we get Christ. It's translating that Hebrew word for Messiah, and that means anointed one. So in the Old Testament, when a prophet or priest or especially a king was, was given over to service to God, they would be anointed with oil. And that was like a physical symbol of their spiritual calling. Okay, But but this term also carries deep kind of theological expectation, an expectation of deliverance. The expectation begins very early in the story of creation. After Adam and Eve sin and, and, and humanity falls, God judges by exiling them from the garden with a promise of a future deliverer, an offspring of Eve that would crush the head of Satan. And the Bible tells us that deliverer would be a mighty prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, who might lead a a second exodus. A mighty king like David, who would be from the royal city of David, who would rule in righteousness. A priest that would intercede for his people in the order of Melchizedek from Psalm 110. The Messiah's kingdom would endure and he would rule on David's throne forever. You see that promise in 2 Samuel 7. Psalm 2 pictures this king as the Lord's anointed Messiah set in place by God himself as his son with nations as his heritage. 
And so the people of God have been waiting on this anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, since they were exiled from his presence in the garden. And Peter is saying, he's here. You're him. Luke has painted the picture. Jesus is from David's royal line. Luke 1, born in Bethlehem. Luke 2, with a right to rule on David's throne and, full, and fulfill the promises of salvation. He's the Savior, Christ the Lord. He's not anointed by man. Notice, notice here, he's God's Messiah. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism for the ministry that God's called him to, to deliver his people. As Paul would later say, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Peter nails it. But the nature of the deliverance, that's another, that's another question. Certainly there was an expectation that that's going to include military freedom, military deliverance from, from oppression, making all things right physically in the world now. But it's that expectation that Jesus moves quickly to address in the next verses. So we can't understand his identity as Messiah apart from knowing his mission. That's our second observation. I'm taking notes. Number two, mission. Peter's confession here is like a, like a peak in this first half of Luke's gospel. And it seems like a moment to celebrate. If you parents, if you know you've been training and teaching your children something and you've, you, you see something they, they've done, they obey what you've said, they, the, the light bulb goes on, it clicks, you want to celebrate through a party, recognize what they've done. And if this is true, he is the Messiah, you would expect there to be a commissioning and a, and a sending out to go and tell the world. But that is not what we see in verse 21. Notice there it says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. He's, he, he calls them to be silent. And we see this pattern as well in the other Gospels. And, and I think the reasoning is, is pretty clear, is that they don't have a full picture yet of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. They don't fully understand. They, they don't understand the nature of his mission as Messiah. And Jesus knows that if he turns them loose now, telling everyone that the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, it's going to cause more chaos and misunderstanding. That's, that's exactly what we see in John 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. In John 6, 15, we read this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So let's be clear about, about something here. There are elements of truth in this expectation, absolute truth. This messianic expectation that Israel had of throwing off oppressors as a mighty warrior king that would sit on the throne. Jesus possesses that kind of power, that kind of worldwide, dominant, universal, unrivaled authority. And you need to know that one day he will exercise it. He will exercise it. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen. But the time has not yet come. One author puts it like this. The misunderstanding that is so dangerous is one of timing, not substance. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his messianic ministry would not begin with political triumph and military conquest. Look at verse 22. 
He's saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's as if Jesus doesn't let a breath go by before he begins to say, okay, here's what the Messiah is. You got that right, but let me, let, let, let me understand what that means. And this is a long process of understanding. This sentence in verse 22 does not compute with the disciples. It is unimaginable, actually. Matthew records Peter, as you know, the one who just made this good confession, right after Jesus says this, taking him aside and rebuking him. Whoa, 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 Jesus. Rebuking Jesus. And then Jesus says to the apostle who made the good confession, get behind me, Satan. So that's a good observation. Any attempt to to explain and understand Jesus apart from his suffering, rejection, and death is satanic. Any triumphalism, satanic, apart from the cross. Things have definitely taken a turn. All of the apostles will desert Jesus because of this very thing. At the cross, they are nowhere to be found. They walk away from him. Even at the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to heaven, one of them asked them in Acts 1-6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's Acts 1. Jesus redirects them then to wait for the Spirit that will empower them to be witnesses to a world with the good news. So I think it's a good observation, a good time to remind ourselves that we shouldn't think that we know everything about Jesus because we know one thing about Jesus. Peter and the Twelve will be lifetime learners. And friend, I hope you are too. A lifetime learner from Jesus Christ. There's so much to learn. And as we've seen in Luke's Gospel, that includes more than just information. It has, has everything to do with knowing and doing, changing, obeying, being humbled and all the things that Jesus commanded. Repenting, living a life of repentance. So Jesus summarizes his career as a Messiah, his mission with these four descriptors, infinitives. Yes, I'm the Messiah and I've come to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise. It's the first full expression of the gospel in Luke that we've come to. If you want to be a Christian, you want to know what it means to be a Christian, here you go. You must understand what Jesus did, who he is and what he did. It's right here. And every part of that mission is essential. That's why the word must is there. It is a divine necessity. Jesus' path is laid out by the Father. It is not one of quick victory and glory, but terrible suffering and rejection. The the paradox, even in the the titles that he uses, are striking. The titles of Messiah, this this cumulative storyline throughout Scripture. The title of Son of Man. If you go back and look at Daniel 7 and the way that that title is used of this glorious one coming on the clouds. All that power and glory and royalty described in terms of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. That's the shape of the Messiah. The glorious, most glorious one would suffer greatly and then be rejected and killed, not by the enemies of Israel, which you would think a king could be killed in battle by his enemies, but by Israel's leadership. 
the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that represents the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that will convene a trial of sorts in denial of Jesus' claim to be Messiah. Again, Morris comments that the word rejected seems to be a technical term to denote rejection after careful legal scrutiny held to see whether a candidate for office was qualified. It implies there is a hierarchy that would consider Jesus' claims but decide against him. And so the disciples are, are grappling with this picture of what kind of Messiah is rejected by his own people. What kind of Messiah shows his power by allowing others to have power over him? What kind of Messiah is defeated in death? It must be this way, Jesus says. Why is that? What stands behind the must in verse 22? In a word, it's sin. The sin of each and every one of us against a holy God. This prediction from Jesus about his suffering and rejection and death, this is not new if we've been reading our Old Testaments and thinking about this storyline of Messiah and Deliverer. Isaiah speaks of this one who would come in Isaiah 53 and be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one who was from, from whom men hide their faces, who was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So friends, Jesus must suffer and die because he has come to redeem sinners with his very life, with his very blood. That life is holy and perfect, fully God, fully man. And he takes the place of our first human representative, Adam, and lives the life that he didn't live and you and I haven't lived. Perfect love for God and for man. And then he, he comes to lay that life down as an atonement to purchase us with his blood. And that's why Isaiah says he's stricken, smitten by God on the cross. Only Jesus could take the wrath that we have all accumulated for ourselves because of our sin. We all come to this place as sinners with a long list of offending God with our sin. And Jesus steps forward to absorb the punishment that we deserve, to drink that cup dry. And he must do this. Or there is no hope for people like you and me. We deserve and will receive hell apart from the suffering and death of Jesus in our place. It's by his wounds we are healed. It's the suffering and death that brings us peace. And so, so listen, the only Christ there is to confess is a crucified Christ. He has nail marks in his hands. And friends, if you're wondering how Christians think about that, we don't think about that as a defeat. We think about that as a victory. In fact, we are not ashamed of his suffering and death. We boast in his suffering and death. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We boast in the cross. We lift up Jesus on the cross. It's there we see our salvation. The end of our sin. 
The glory of God atoning for his people. He's not a defeated Messiah. It's through judgment that he brings salvation. It's through laying down his life that he wins. On the third day, Jesus says, I will rise. And he rose. I'm not sure what the disciples thought about that at this moment. But Jesus has come, he says, to die to defeat death. And he's going to prove it by rising from the grave. This is both a sign of God's power over death and the sufficiency of the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. In other words, it was enough. How do you know? He got up out of the grave. He's walking around, glorified, calling people to himself to believe. He paid it all and rose as a conquering king, standing over his enemies of sin and death. So the only Christ to profess is a crucified and risen Christ. That's who we profess. The time of silence is over. Cyril of Alexandria says it this way. We must proclaim the cross, the passion, and the death in the flesh of Jesus. We must also preach his resurrection from the dead. When he utterly abolished death and wiped out destruction, he robbed hell and overthrew the tyranny of the enemy. He took away the sin of the world, opened the gates above to the dwellers upon the earth, and united earth to heaven. These things proved him to be in truth God. He commanded the disciples, therefore, here in Luke 9, to guard the mystery by a seasonable silence until the whole plan should arrive at a suitable conclusion. But that seasonable silence has come to an end, friends. There is good news to tell. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there's good news to believe. For you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ personally today. Come to Him in faith. Place all your trust in Him. Turn away from your life of sin and rebellion. And He will be your Savior, your King, your Messiah. You don't have to know everything there is to know about Him today. You won't. But know this one thing. He came to suffer, to be rejected, to die on a cross, and to rise. So that you and me would be accepted by a holy God. Forgiven of our sin, made righteous, and be able to enjoy eternal life with God who made us and loves us. Know that about Jesus today. And it'll change all of your other days. So our sin stands behind this must. There's another thing that stands behind the must of verse 22. And it's simply the great, amazing love of God that compelled Jesus to come and die for sinners. Nothing constrains him or forces him to do anything that he does that he doesn't want to do. The necessity of Christ's suffering is rooted in God's free decision to take away the sins of his people and restore them to himself. His love These things must happen because God loved the world and He sent His only Son to die for sinners. Oh, how we want you to know the love of Jesus. To walk out of church today differently than when you walked in. We're praying that as we study the life of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, that God would do this. He would open our eyes just like He does here with Peter. In C.S. Lewis's autobiography, kind of his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by joy, he describes the time in his life when he is wrestling with the claims of Christ and how God was continually pursuing him. 
And still he had yet to believe that Christ was God. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And then one day it happened. He says this, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven from Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. So friend, are you awake? Awake to Jesus as the one who suffered, was rejected, and died for you. Who rose from the grave. Who beckons you to come. Who asks you the question, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Lord, we we do ask that you would work in and through your word in your people. We pray that by the Spirit, we would respond. And some of us, that means responding in worship, thanksgiving, as we sing. And some, it's going to be responding in faith to you, even in just in the quietness of our heart in this moment, acknowledging our sin, putting our faith in you. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful for the power of your word working through your spirit. We've seen such great examples of that today. We pray that you would continue to work. We've heard stories of of so many that have just gone through life and then one day it made sense. And so we pray you would just make it make sense. That you would do your work and that you would continue to show us as a congregation what it means to take up our cross and follow you. We love you and pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.